0: Welcome to the Capital Club podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today I'm here with Dwayne J. Clark. Dwayne, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Dwayne is the founder and CEO of Aegis Living. With more than 37 years of senior housing experience, Dwayne is nationally known for redefining the industry from innovative programmatic design of senior living communities to novel approaches with employee engagement and retention. He has long been a pioneer in the fields of wellness and longevity, having overseen the care of more than 60,000 seniors. With his wife, he travels to over 80 countries exploring different healing modalities, from working with doctors and alternative health specialists to engaging in mind, body, and spirit practices. These discoveries inspired his latest book, an Amazon bestseller, 30 Summers More, which we're going to get into extensively. So, Dwayne, timely conversation for me. I just recently turned 40, and I've definitely been having some <laughs> emotional and mental challenges associated with that number hanging over my head, so I'm, I'm excited to get into this.
2: Oh my God, you're a baby. I'd <laughs> love to make that statement. I just turned 40. I would love it. so
1: well hey, I'm, I'm beginning to <laughs> yeah, I'm beginning to realize that I, I probably have more time than I think, hopefully. But there is just something, you know, socially, the connotations associated with that number obviously have had me thinking about how I can not just have a quantity of life, but a quality of life that I want. So let's start in terms of the book. What was the genesis, the catalyst behind you doing all this investigation and and learning and research?
2: Yeah, let let me answer that question in a moment, but I want to just tap into something you just said, right? Because I think it's a gigantic problem with how we view our own health, and that's the societal perception that you know we're old or we're we're reaching this landmark, but we don't have much time left. And you know, forties nothing, fifties nothing, sixties nothing, even seventies nothing. And the reality is, we have to be present for our age, and if we're in gratitude about that, we're optimistic about that. It will actually add years to our life, and I think one of the things that society does is put all these markers out there that have nothing to do with anything, right? They have, who cares what forty is? Is that is that the halfway mark of your life? Well, maybe you're going to live to 110. It's not the halfway mark, right? But your obsession or your your worry about it—I'm not speaking to you directly, but everyone's—you know—worry about it actually decreases your life expectancy because that that worry, that stress, that pessimism actually kills ourselves and and helps us not live longer. So now I'll answer your your second question. but I just wanted to put that out there because I think it's a great basis for how I think about life in the book. So I've always been interested in why people live to a certain age, right? And this goes back to in the late 80s, I was an administrator of a retirement home. And every morning, I would be greeted at 8 a.m. by two male residents who were going to breakfast. The one I would call Dr. Smith. I don't remember his first name, but he, he was a doctor. I believe his last name was Smith. And he would come in, 79 years old, very meek, mild-mannered man that would be very softly spoken, both in the morning. You know. And his wife was kind of what I would... Call stereotypical henpecker. You know, don't eat too much. Make sure you go for a walk. You know, always on it. And I thought, man, this guy's going to live forever. You know, he barely eats anything. He's like a minimalist. He's like 142 pounds, like five nine. Every day he goes for his walk, and he's a doctor, right? Then contrast that with a resident that I called Farmer Carl. Farmer Carl would come down the hallway, and you'd hear him a hundred feet before he got my office. How's everybody doing? I'm going to go have some pick and eggs for breakfast. And, you know, you'd hear, I mean, people would be laughing and roaring. And Carl was about 5'7 and about 280 pounds. And I thought, man, Carl's going to have a heart attack in the middle of the dining room. This is not going to be good, right? And Carl was about 87 at the time. So eight years older than Dr. Smith. Now, I came in for work one day and my staff said, Dr. Smith passed away in the middle of the night. I'm like, really? Dr. Smith passed away? And I started obsessing about these two in, individuals, right? And saying, why would this guy who was a doctor, you know, who was very aware of all the things you can do and can't do for your health and longevity, why would he die? And why would Carl, who was 87 and, you know, a good 100 pounds overweight, why would he live? And everybody's automatic response is, well, it's genetics, it's genetics, right? That's what we go to. That's our default mode. You know, in writing this book, I found that genetics is only, only about 22% involved in how long you're going to live. Now, that's not insignificant. 22% is a lot, but it's, it's, it's not a driving factor. I mean, 78% of it is really life choice. So as I went and studied this more and more and looked at all kinds of study from the Harvard study, which is the longest longevity study in the world almost 80 years old now, to actually interviewing presidents. The things that kept talking to the top were two things. One, if you were happy at the age of 50 with your partner, your life partner, it would add seven more years to your life. Dr. Smith was not happy with his partner. They had a you know, contentious partnership. Carl adored his wife, absolutely adored his wife. The other thing is purpose. And every president that you talk to will say this. And and if you look at, I I did my own president study. If you look at the age of presidents versus what their mortality rate was at the age of their birth, and then contrast that to when they died, the average president's living about 15 years longer than they're supposed to. It's the most stressful job on the planet. Why would you live 15 years longer? You know, when I was interviewing Bill Clinton, I said, come on, do you have a special pill that presidents take? It's like, no. I go to Walter Reed. It's not, you know, not exactly known to be innovators, right? So, you know, but he did say it's about purpose. I mean, you look at Jimmy Carter. He is my poster child for longevity. I mean, the guy, you know, he's he's wheelchair-bound now, but he's 98, 98, 99. You know, he has a trike bike that he rides around. He was teaching Sunday school until three months ago. He's written about
1: 45 books. I mean, just incredible production. Yeah.
2: Right, right. So purpose... And, you know, who you're married to are two incredible driving factors to longevity.
1: And and so, from that context, you go really deep here, but I kind of want to start at the end. What ultimately causes us to die? And, And what are some of the things that we can use by knowing how the end looks to help us, you know, not push it off, but to have to your point, a sustainable quality of life up until we die? You know, the human body is really a miraculous creation, right?
2: I I don't care what your belief system is and how we got here and everything else, but the human body has so many duplicative systems to make sure we don't die. It's really quite hard to kill us, right? And, And we've evolved through, you know, years and years and years of evolution, our body's getting better and better and better. So what happens when we die is we just don't fall out and die. Our cells die. So, you know, one of the more depressing things that I talk about when I speak to groups is that at the age of 30 is when you reach your cellular peak. Now, you know, you're turning 40, you're going to get depressed about this. But what I I mean by that is that at the age of 30, our body's producing more cells than we can possibly consume. And think about this. Think about when you were young, you know, when you're in college, you're like, man, I would party till three, four in the morning, get two hours sleep, go to the gym, workout and go to work. Right. And then you're like, man, I, I'm like 30 now and I just can't do that anymore. Well, that, that's because you had this extraordinary res- reservoir of additional cells that your body would just plug in. Right. When you hit 30, your body stops producing more cells than you use, and you use more cells than you can produce. So, what happens to us? When we have cellular death, right? So That—that's the oversimplification of how we die. Now, what causes cellular death? This is the most fascinating thing that I find, because we, as a country, America, more than any, anyone else, is a country that's dying of inflammation. Okay, and so you look at what do you, what do you need? Well, heart disease. It's a disease of inflammation. Diabetes, disease of inflammation. Strokes, disease of inflammation. Alzheimer's, disease of inflammation. COVID, disease of inflammation. All the top, with the exception of, of accidents, the top five causes of death are all inflammatory related, right? So COVID, I mean, I had COVID about three and a half weeks ago. And I would say I didn't have a mild case. It wasn't like I had a, felt like I had a cold. I felt like I had bad flu. I wouldn't say it was severe, my SAT rates stayed normal. But since then, my blood pressure has gone up about 10 to 15 points. I monitor my blood pressure, my blood sugar, my weight, my SAT rates every, every day. So I, I log this. I've done it for almost eight years. And so I know my trend line. Why is that happening? Because my body is massively inflamed from COVID and it doesn't go away in five to seven days. You know, the, the symptomatic issues associated with COVID may go away in a few days, but your body's still severely inflamed. In fact, I have a friend who's quite an athlete, had COVID, at seven days, was dying to work out because he works out twice a day, went for a run on day eight, ended up getting severe pneumonia because his body was so inflamed and and was in the hospital for three days. So you've got to pay attention to the inflammatory response of all the things that we do. Now, so the question is, you know, why do we have such an inflammatory response? Response, you know, a good portion of it has to do with our diet. You know, in in the, in the eighteen nineteen hundreds, well, I think it was nineteen hundred, we consumed about eighteen nineteen pounds of sugar per year. Per year, right? Sugar desserts, candy was met as a special occasion We now, as an average American, consume about one hundred and fifty eight pounds of sugar. One hundred and fifty eight pounds. We are eating a life-size chocolate Easter bunny every year, right? 158 pounds. So you look at that and you say, wow, you know, I mean, diabetes is a great example. Diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetes, excuse me, really didn't exist in the early 1900s. I mean, they discovered a different kind of diabetes in the 1920s, 1930s, but it wasn't until the 1950s when type 2 diabetes shot through the roof. Why did it shoot through the roof? Well, look at what was happening in our society. We had drive-in restaurants. We had TV dinners. We had ho-hos and ding-dongs and Twinkies that came about. We got into snacking. We got movie-sized popcorn and movie-sized candy. So all those trends spike type 2 diabetes. It was because of our consumption. So, you know, if anything, I would say you have to be careful about your sugar intake. Sugar drives blood pressure actually more than salt, believe it or not. So if you consume a lot of sugar, your blood pressure will go up and it will have a dramatic effect on you, even even above your salt intake for blood pressure. So, you know, we are killing ourselves through our, you know, ravenous cravings and indulgences of, of great food, of tasty food. And, you know, the impact has been
1: stunning. You know, it's, it seems like... Based on your statement and, and what's in the book, it's really holistic, right? And it's really hard to nail down, but obviously nutrition, stress, the environment we create for ourselves, the activity level that we have all kind of go into this equation of what can extend life and then have a better quality of life. Where do you start, right? If you're, if you're new to this space, obviously read the book, but is it, it starts with just having this holistic self-assessment of of all of these data points of how you're living your life and then going step by step through all of them. Where do you start? Yeah, that's a really good question and one that I get asked a lot in terms
2: of where do you start? The first part of it is that you really need to be in touch with yourself. And what does that mean? Well, that's why I journal all my vitals, right? So You know, I want to know what my baseline of my blood pressure is, my blood sugar. You know, there's, there are, we don't even know what the real number is, but it's estimated like eight to 10 million people walking around the planet around the United States with high blood pressure that don't know it. Eight to 10 million, as much as 12 million diabetics that don't know it. I I have diagnosed, I shouldn't say I'm not a doctor, but I have diagnosed in terms of prompting people to test and testing people at least seven people who were diabetic that didn't know it. But I said, well, let's test your blood sugar right now. And they're like, oh my God, I'm diabetic. And probably more than that with people with high blood pressure. So you have to have this self-awareness about the things that are going to kill you. And, you know, I'm a big believer in testing. I get my blood tested every 60 days. Now, why do I do that, again, it's about baselines. I want to see what's going on with my body, Are my inflammatory responses up? Is my vitamin D level low? You know, just a sidebar on vitamin D, there's been some great studies with regard to COVID. And people who had vitamin D levels that were very, very low, like under 30, their chances of dying from COVID were exponentially higher than someone that had, let's say, a vitamin D level of 70, Right. That's a simple thing that you can get tests. And if you live in an area like I do in Seattle, it's cloudy and you're not getting direct sunshine a lot. That's a vital thing for you to do. Now, most doctors will say, oh, you know, if you're around 40, it's okay. I, I don't believe that. I, I like my vitamin D to be between 80 and 100. In fact, when I got COVID, my vitamin D, because I just had a blood test the week before I got COVID, was 77. I felt like that really protected me from having severe COVID. So, you know, it starts really with self-assessment. And then that gives you a baseline to branch out. There are things like, you know, supplements that your body needs. You don't know what it needs until you get those blood tests. And I'm a big believer in compounded, specialized supplements. Everybody thinks this cost a, a zillion dollars It's about $300 for three month supply. And it, your, your nutritionist takes your blood test and they say, oh, okay, well, you're deficient here, you're deficient there. Let's compound a vitamin that's specific for your body and what it needs, right? Now, guess what? That's going to change from summer to winter because your body's going through, you know, different environments. And so that's why I get my blood tested often. And they're like, oh, but you need a totally different compound in December than you do in July. So, you know, I'm a big believer in compounded supplements. You know, and, and again, every 30 days, I have a nutritionist that evaluates that. I have a concierge physician. Not everyone can afford that, but I have a Chinese doctor. I spend about probably 15 to 20 hours on my own health. Now that may seem extreme. I'm, I'm including workouts. I've included meditation. I'm including, you know, going to my acupuncturist massage, all those things. So you, you got to take a genuine interest in the machine that you're in if you're going to, you know, live long.
0: Want to learn more about investing in alternatives, get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com.
1: So it seems like Starting at the self-assessment phase, understanding what your baseline is, starting to become an advocate for yourself, and really starting to be educated on what this whole world looks like. And it does take some time and effort, but it's not insurmountable. After you go through those pieces, it seems like you keep coming back to the nutrition, to the diet component on it. Could you maybe give us a high-level things that... Maybe not necessarily recommendations, because everyone's going to be different, but things that you need to be aware of, what you've seen work for yourself, and what some kind of red flags are on the diet nutrition side.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's the obvious thing that you don't want to eat processed meat, you don't want to eat sugar, you don't want to eat fried foods, you don't want to eat fast foods, everybody knows that, right? So those are things that, you know, we, we should look at those things as treats. Like, you know, when we were growing up as kids and your mom said, we get a treat, right? They're not a daily habit. They're not something that our bodies were meant to handle. And so, you know, that, that's how we should view those types of foods. Your body, and again, let's go back to cellular health. Your body needs certain things for cellular health. First of all, it needs water. We drink far too little water. I, you know, not a paid commercial, but I, I like this, this essential water. Because it's oxygenated water. Our, our cells need oxygen, right? So, I mean, I'm, I love drinking 70 to 90 ounces of water every day. I rarely drink anything else, maybe tea, a green tea, again, helps cellular health. So you, you, you have to start with what things are going to help my body live longer? You know, you know, superfoods. I, I, I have a cup and a half of blueberries in a shake mix every morning, every religiously. Has a high degree of fiber, has enough protein. I use some peanut butter in it. I put greens in it and that kind of, I, I'm not the kind of guy that's going to eat six servings of broccoli in a day. Right. And I don't think most people are, but you know, that's what people will say is go out and have six servings of vegetables. I think very, very few people are eating vegetables for breakfast. Some people may, but very few people are. So I have to get my, my greens and my superfoods in another way. I, I use a, a shake mix called Kavala and it's it's a great shake mix and it's called Jumbo Superfood, and I love it. So I do that every day. It has a high fiber content, content so things move through you quickly, you know what I mean. And it's got great protein and you won't have the sugar highs and lows. It lasts me about three, three and a half hours before I need to eat anything else. So that's how I start my day. The other thing that you know, we can go into this a little bit later, but, you know, when you sleep, depending if you're a man or woman, way and so on, you'll lose between 12 and 18 ounces of water in the party, uh, overnight when you sleep. So the first thing that I do is I chug, you know, 12, 15 ounces of water. Now, what is the first thing 90% of America does when they get up? They get up, they go pee, they turn on the coffee pot and they have two cups of coffee. What does coffee do? The hybrid you. Right. You may get that buzz from the caffeine, but it's not doing your body great. I'm not saying that don't drink your coffee because coffee has great, you know, certain things that add to longevity as well. But before you do, drink your water because your water will hydrate your cells. It'll get rid of brain fog. It will start your metabolism. It will actually help you go to the bathroom more. And, you know, there's a whole process that occurs about sleep that we can talk about later if we have time, that you need to get rid of these deadly cells in your body and kind of wash them out of your body. Coffee will not do that. Water will do that. And those cells that they're left in your body will give you very bad diseases.
1: So the next logical step, and we will get into sleep here in a minute, but before we do that, we've got the self-assessment, this advocacy, this educational component, the diet, nutrition side of it. And next, logically, would be exercise, movement, which means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. But you know, what are some daily rituals that you've incorporated in your life to make movement a foundational piece?
2: Yeah. I try to stay away from the word exercise because it's offensive and intimidating to some people. You know, I live in Europe six to eight weeks out of the year. And when you go to Europe, if if you ask where's the lo- local gym they'll actually laugh at you you know they'll go do you want to do sport you know and and what what they mean is there's a soccer field right over there right but you're not going to find you know a gold's gym you know on every block and why is that because people get their steps in by walking to work they bicycle everywhere they you know, it's it's just incorporated in their lifestyle. And Europeans in most countries will live two years longer than Americans, and they smoke like crazy. So, you know, I really focus on movement. And you know, some of this is simple. If I cook dinner in an hour, you know, in an hour time frame, I'll burn three thousand steps, right? And if you think about, you know, it's so funny. I talk to these people, and they say, "Hey, you know, boy, I'm so much healthier than my dad." I go. Why do you think that? And I go. Well, he never went to the gym. I go to the gym four times a week. And I go. Do you mow your lawn? Well, no. We have a, we have a gardener that does that. Oh, do you wash your own car? No, I take it to the car washing. You know they do. How about? Have you ever hung clothes on your line in you the wash washer? Well, no. Of course not. Do you wash your dog? No. So the the point of this story is that our dads and our moms move naturally so much more than we did. I mean, you can you know. You can take your iPhone and order a pizza, close the drapes, turn on music, switch the television, turn on your security system, find the best restaurant, look up a word in the dictionary. You know. Now think about what our parents had to do, right? Or our grandparents had to do. You know, if you wanted the name of a good restaurant, you walked over to the neighbors and say, "Hey, George, Alice, you know a name? Yeah, we're going to go out to dinner. You know a good restaurant? You know they didn't. They didn't look up on their iPhone. If you had to change the TV. You had to get off your rear end and you had to walk 10 feet, change the television. yeah, answer the phone. All of those added up to steps, right? And so we were much more physical 50 years ago than we are today. So going to the gym, you know, four times a week, it it may be good, but it doesn't take the place of just plain, simple movement. I like to move, you know, around 7,500 to 8,000 steps minimum a day. Now, everybody thinks you have to get 10,000 steps in. The 10,000 steps has no basis in science. In fact, the 10,000 steps came as an advertising game for a Japanese pedometer like 30 years ago where the word in Japan equated to 10,000 steps. It has nothing to do with health or science or longevity. And so if you get 7,500 to 8,000 steps in a day, you're going to do as well as getting 10,000 steps in. So that should be a relief to someone. And you just have to be creative about how you get those 10,000 steps in. The other thing I will tell you, it's, it's really an 80-20 rule in terms of your health, your fitness, and everything else. 80% of your body's compensation is, is dependent on how much, you know, how much you eat and what you eat. 20% is, is regulated by exercise. It's very, very difficult to exercise bad food away. So just think about that. 80% is what you put in your mouth. 20% is how you exercise.
1: And I think that progression is really helpful to people because oftentimes due to social media, mass media, et cetera, it's pitched as, you know, exercise or the gym will get you out of this jam, but it's really, you've got to start well before that in terms of what gas you're putting in the car before you expect to see it perform such. So you you referenced this, I I wanted to get into sleep, which is something that, that I've been focused on myself. The last six months, especially, we're starting to learn a lot more about how it impacts overall wellness, health, cognitive ability. Could you maybe comment on what that research looked like for you? Because we we connected through YPO. There certainly is an idea that amongst many professionals who are strivers, sleep when you're dead. You know, we can it's something that we can overcome. And it's really come 180 degrees where it's being embraced as just part of your overall holistic wellness plan.
2: Yeah, that's really a crime to health to think that we we can get a, you know get on in life with five hours sleep or six hours sleep. It's really a crime to not only your health, but your productivity. So let let's talk about what happens when you sleep. So your your body, think of it like a, a factory, right? Sleep has a very functional mechanical value to your body and it does two things first of all when you sleep your body has to detoxify so by detoxify i mean it actually takes all these cells that are dead and and excretes them right now the factory does not work on a schedule that allows it to do that fully at five hours right or even six hours the factory needs seven hours to finish its job to excrete these cells. And how does it excrete it? Well, it, it does it through a lymphatic system. Your brain doesn't have a lymphatic system. But during night, your brain is like a sponge that actually shrinks and rings out all the dead cells and then processes it, it down through your lymphatic system and you pee it out. That's why drinking water in the morning is so critical to your overall health. It'll get rid of your brain fog. You have a bottle of water in ten minutes, your brain fog will go away. So you need that seven hours to excrete all those dead cells. What happens if those dead cells you know stay in your body? Well, those are the things that cause cancer. those are the things that cause Alzheimer's. those are the things that cause diabetes, right? Heart disease. They're cells that enhance the inflammatory process, right? The second thing that happens during during the time that you sleep. Is, is it a regenerative process? So your body needs a minimum of seven hours to actually get the factory to work to produce the cells that have died, right? And if you don't give it that seven hours, it will come up short. It, you know, it may produce eighty percent of the cells that you need, right? And that will shorten your lifespan. It will shorten your productivity. Beyond that, the quality of sleep that you have and if there's anything that I would recommend in terms of, this is foundational. For me. Sleep is the driver to your overall health. If there's beyond nutrition, beyond exercise, beyond supplements, beyond alternative medicine, sleep is absolutely fundamental. If you don't, if you don't get sleep, your stress hormones will go up. You'll gain weight. Your cortisol will shoot through the roof. I mean, just all kinds of bad things happen. You'll get brain fog. You won't be as creative. You, know, you, you'll, you subject yourself to possible you know, deathly diseases. So you need to have that seven hours. But in addition to that seven hours, you need to regulate the quality of your sleep, meaning deep and REM sleep. So, you know, deep sleep is where the cells are really produced, right? REM sleep is your active brain, you know, activation. And you need at least 15% of each. Now, how do you, you know, I don't care if you buy a Fitbit. I, I, I use an Aura ring you know, whatever you use, some Apple watch or whatever, but you need to track that sleep. And so if you sleep 15 hours or excuse me, if you sleep seven hours, you should get at least 15%, both in deep and REM. So that means, you know, an hour, 10, hour, 15 minutes of each of those. I can sleep eight hours. And if I get 45 minutes of deep, I don't, I don't feel that great. And again, this all comes back to your baselines, right? What is my baseline? And so when you understand, well, what did I do last night? Oh, did I have some alcohol right before I went to bed? Oh, that's why I only got 45 minutes of deep. Did I eat sugar right before I went to bed? Oh, that's why I got 45 minutes. Did I work out an hour within going you know, to bed? That's why. Did I watch a violent TV show right before I went to bed? All these things will affect your REM and deep sleep, right? You know, Was there light in my room? Was the temperature too high? All these things will affect the quality of your sleep. So you have to you have to really get into this self-assessment and cause and effect to really help better the situation. The, the thing, my, my wife was a trauma nurse and worked night shift for years, nursing years. and so she likes going to bed at, at one in the morning. I like being asleep at 10, 15. That was a struggle with us for years, and I would say five out of seven nights, she still wants to stay up late because that's the way her body clock works. But now I've gotten her to go to bed at ten o'clock, and and slowly start to, to have her reformat herself to she's a morning person, and that that has helped the
1: quality of her sleep immensely. So we've covered a lot of ground. We've you know discussed genetics, exercise, nutrition, stress. All these things matter, but fundamentally, it seems like if you're going to focus on, you know, three things that can help you navigate this field. It comes down to people, purpose, and and positivity. Could you maybe comment on a high level about how you think about how those three P's can be incorporated into your life?
2: Yeah. Before I do that, I want to mention one other thing that we haven't talked on, and that's really alternative therapies. You know, so Eastern medicine, whatever. Because I think that's a huge piece of the pie for longevity. So I have, I have acupuncture every week. My acupuncture was also a surgeon, a medical doctor. So it's not hocus-focus, it's a real life thing. I, I believe in certain Chinese herbs to help you do things. Meditation is a foundational piece of my life. I actually teach meditation now, and I do both transcendental and I do guided meditation. It's incredibly powerful, and that, that helps with relieving stress, helping self-reduction heart surgeons are now recommending meditation. They say it's twice as effective as heart medication. So, you know, when, when heart surgeons start doing that, you know, it's been in place, you know, I believe in things like Reiki and, you know, healing massage and so on modalities that have been around for thousands and thousands of years. So I would just, I'd be remiss not to mention those because that is a huge part of my formula and my success. So, I think with regard to the three P's, you know, first of all, so much of our life is consumed by people that we interact with on a daily basis, right? And so you get to choose those. You get to choose what people you interact with. There are a lot of toxicity in the world. And if you have a lot of toxic people Mm -hmm. in your life, it's it's going to hurt your health, Right. So the first thing I would do is evaluate the level of toxicity in in people you have in your life. By the same token, try to be around people that inspire you, that motivate you. That's why, you know, having the right partner, spouse, partner at the age of 50 adds so much to your life, right? Because they so influence you. You know, so we've talked about purpose and the presidents and so on, but our brain is really our control center for longevity. And there's been lots and lots of studies about people who retire at 63, 64, 65, move to Arizona and, you know, want to go fishing or play golf all day, right? Those people die through it, right? Because our brain is really thinking about, well, why do I need to wake up tomorrow? Why, is there a purpose, right? However, w- when people, and again, presidents are the best evidence of this, Let's say, hey, I have this foundation. I got to go be responsible for I got to speak and engage, whatever. When we have true purpose in our life, and I don't consider a golf game true purpose. When we have true purpose in our life, our brain is engaged. Hey, you have to, come on, body, you have to wake up and do this, right? And so that is critical for our system to move forward in life, to get out of bed. And then, you know, the positivity, I think the Farmer Farrell and the the Dr. Smith example is the best I could give because Dr. Smith was henpecked. He wasn't very positive. The other thing that I didn't mention in contrast to those two individuals is being out in nature is a huge factor for longevity. In, In Japan, you know, they give, they write prescriptions for heart disease, stress, diabetes, you know, all kinds of things that are called I I don't remember the Japanese word, but essentially nature walks. They say, oh, three hours a week, you need to go walk one hour in the the forest. But sometimes they call it forest bathing. Well, Carl, the farmer, he was outside his whole life. He was a farmer. He was outside for, from, you know, dusk to dawn. And Dr. Smith was in a, you know, a, a cubicle office all day, seeing patients. He was never outside. So, you know, longevity and nature play a huge part. I mean, I like to do my podcast. I'm looking out of my garden right now and it's totally green. And there is a relationship between nature and the oxygen and its omitting and how our bodies in sync with that. In fact, there's a whole concept called biophilia and hospitals discovered this accidentally. When they would take people out post-op, they would have one room that overlooked a garden and another that overlooked a brick building. And they found that people... That overlooked the garden were healing post op twice as fast. And they said, wow, well, what a coincidence. Isn't that unusual, right? It wasn't unusual if it was our natural connection with those oxygen omitting plants that made us want to heal faster and live longer. So we have biophilia walls in all our buildings in our corporate office. So, you know, a lot of this has to do with, you know, thinking about what are the things that are going to extend ourselves that are going to extend our longevity.
1: So as we finish up here and we barely scratched the surface, I definitely encourage people to read the book because it's a huge resource and we'll certainly include a a link to the Amazon page, but what are some daily micro habits that you have that you have found that that work for yourself?
2: Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about them. First thing you do is get up, you you drink, you know, your water. That's the first thing before you even go pee, you know, get up drink your water down at, you know, and not cold water, but room temperature because your body then doesn't have to adjust and process it. Meditation. Don't meditate within an hour of waking up. Wait at least an hour. I love saying morning gratitudes. So going out and looking out and whatever you're grateful for. I had a good night's sleep. I have a beautiful wife. You know, I love the sun, you know, whatever. That starts the optimistic clock. Because if you start your day with that, and then you get stuck in traffic, you have a baseline that's above the floor. I love when I'm in the shower, the last 60 seconds of the shower, turning it on totally ice cold, that's difficult, believe me. But it will take down your inflammatory response, but will also wake up your brain. You will be super energized. And that, you know, morning walks, you know, and stretching is a big deal. So, you know, those are a few things that I like to do.
1: Dwayne, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I definitely encourage people to check out the book. We'll include links to your personal website as well as the book. But if folks are interested in engaging with you, learning more about the research you've done, what's the best way for them to get in touch?
2: Sure. You can just email me. It's duane, D-W-A-Y-N-E, dot Clark, C-L-A-R-K, at A-E-G-I-S, L-I-V-I-N-G, dot com. So I'd be happy to answer any questions or
1: be a resource for you. Awesome. Dwayne, thank you so much. Hope you have a great day. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.